Good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them out to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the second half of fighting for unity. Um, have you ever uh, looked at your life and just felt like, man, I'm here, but I need to be over here? Like, I remember becoming a Christian. I grew up in church. I kind of knew the way I was supposed to live. You know, I learned those things. I was really blessed by having things ingrained in my life, uh, which I completely lived in rebellion against. And then I became a Christian, and I just had this massive list of things that I needed to stop doing. And, uh, you know, some of the minor things, like I use profanity all the time. If I ever hurt myself, profanity came out. Um, I, I had, like, th things on my list like stop stealing, stop fighting, stop getting drunk. Like, there was, there was just, like, I had this long list of things that I had to take out of my life. And, um, and I remember a year after I got saved, just looking at my life and thinking, man, God saved me because I am not the same person I was last year. And I knew I didn't change myself. I knew God changed me. And uh, then I went away to Bible college, and I remember in my, uh, my first year of Bible college, walking down to the cafeteria, and I just remember thinking to myself, man, um, I can't think of anything else I need to work on. <laughs> and, um, and so and I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only 21, um, and I, I've only been a Christian for like three years, so God can't be done with me. Like, I can't have reached maturity. I, I do remember going to my church and looking around at my church, a church very similar to this, and, and, just, and, and I saw a bunch of compromise. I saw a bunch of people that weren't all that God, that I think God would want them to be. And I remember thinking, man, I, I kind of feel like the most mature person here. But that can't be true because a lot of these people have been Christians their whole life. And... Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing what the Lord ended up doing with me because in that year, like I remember shortly after that I'm praying, I'm like, God, I, I know I still have a lot of things to work on, but I just don't see what they are. And in the, in the coming years, the Lord helped me realize that I had not completed the task. I just got rid of all the really obvious things. And uh, I still had a lot more to do. And I remember in my, in my second year of marriage, the Lord was really helping me. And I just thought, man, I'm actually really a terrible person. <laughs> And I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to where I need to be. So this is the thing that I love about the Corinthian church is Paul goes into this really sinful town. And he shares the gospel and these people end up becoming Christians and they come to the church. And um, this church, like people read the New Testament, they think about the Corinthian church. Oh man, Paul must have loved the Philippian church. They were so loving and encouraging. They gave him money. They did all these things to support him. The Corinthian church, they were so bad that the Apostle Paul wouldn't take a paycheck from them. When he was ministering to them, he, he said, you're so spiritually immature, I will not accept any money from you. So he actually got a job, and all week would work, and then on weekends would do the things that God called him to do, until the Philippian church took this offering, and they sent it. And Paul was like, Corinthian church, I won't take any money from you, but I will let the Philippians support me. So as soon as they gave him money, then he quit working, and he just started ministering to the Corinthians. And so this church, a lot of times people look at the Corinthian church and they just feel like, man, they must have been such a thorn in Paul's side. And I would just say, I think that that is totally missing it. Paul loved the Corinthian church. He was so amazed 
by the amazing things that God had done, debauched, sinful living. They got saved, God transformed them. And then, as is no surprise, they still had other things that they needed to work on. And one of the things that I specifically love about our passage is that we're going to learn not just the lessons that the Corinthians needed to learn, but there's a, this great opportunity to look at Paul and the way he did ministry and what he did and how he approached people and how he tried to help them grow. And as you think about that in those two ways, each of us in ways are like the Corinthians. Like we have some of these same issues in our life. This church has some of the same issues that the Corinthian church had. And also, God has given us people that we're supposed to encourage and help and disciple and train. And we're supposed to address things in people's lives. And so as we look at the Corinthian church, we, and we look at Paul and what he writes to them and how he handles them, we actually get to learn, and that's what we're supposed to be doing with the people that God has given us to care for. So that would be our kids and our family. And also, this is how we care for each other in the church. And I just think it's incredible. It's amazing. It's, it's an amazing blessing. And I think Paul looked at the Corinthian church, and he gave them instructions, and he was confident. Because one of the things you find out in Scripture is that the power of God transforms a Christian's life. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he takes this dead heart. Romans 6 talks about that as being a slave to sin. And we're slaves to sin, but God comes into our heart and he changes us. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it says a natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him, but the spiritual person appraises all things. And it's because a spiritually dead heart can't understand truth. And a spiritually dead heart lives out sinfulness. And then he says, but a spiritually living heart? Man, God saves that heart, makes it spiritually alive. And then that spiritually saved heart starts living out righteousness. And so um, Paul just talks about that transformation. And here's what Paul knows. The same power that saves you makes you righteous. And that's something as you look at scripture, sometimes you have people who they say, oh, I'm a Christian. And yet their life is an unbroken string of living out sinfulness and rebellion against God. Well, Jesus talks about that, Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons, do miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so this is the thing I think is amazing. This church saved out of incredible sin. They get together and they have these sin problems, this disunity, all these issues. And the Apostle Paul writes them a letter. And he just says, this is what God wants from you. You want to know what's amazing to me? They hear it and they obey it. And, and I think Paul was confident. Yeah, the Christians in this group will hear this. They will obey. They will change. And as we were talking, we're talking about unity and how unity is something worth fighting for. And the Apostle Paul begins addressing the Corinthian issues by explaining their salvation and then addressing the issue of unity. And we're going to see Paul's heavy-handedness. We're going to see how firm he is. So the two things we're really going to be looking at this morning is the way that, that Paul 
that, that unity flows out of love. And we're going to see Paul's love for the Corinthians. And that's something we need to know. And the second thing is we're going to learn that he's willing to take really strong steps to make sure they obey. And I was thinking about that. I'm a new parent. And the, this really old pastor in our church, we had an interim pastor way back then. And he said, when we were having kids, he says, your kids need to know two things. Number one, they need to know that they're loved. And number two, they need to know that they must obey. And then I was just thinking about, <laughs> look at Paul's ministry. Man, his spiritual leadership in the church, people needed to know that they were loved. And they needed to know that they must obey God. And uh, so we're going to be digging in, into that and seeing that. And um, as we consider this, let's just review a couple things that we learned last week. And the first one is this, um, that unity flows from living according to Scripture. Um, Paul tells the Corinthians, you need to learn not to go beyond what is written. In other words, we read the Bible and we do exactly what it says. We don't disregard it. We don't go, oh, I'll take that. That's an option. I'll, I'll kind of, opt you know, I'll take that under advisement, but I'll do what I want to do. No. When God tells you to do something, you do exactly what God says. And, and we think about salvation, right? When Jesus was here on earth, when he was calling people to repentance and people came to Jesus and they wanted to be saved, uh, he just said, unless you hate your, mo your mother, your, your, your brother, your father, your sisters, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. The very first thing Jesus says to anybody who comes to me is, I'm the Lord, I am God, and you must obey me. And the rich rung ruler comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, you think you've done everything? Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Jesus would pick out the one thing that people were unwilling to do, and he'd say, do that. And if you can't do that, then you can't be my disciple. And that by no means is that we earn our salvation. That's actually just a question that says, has God regenerated your heart? Because when a person is a Christian, when they have a regenerated heart, they have a desire to obey. That's what Jesus says, right? If you love me, you will obey me. So that's, that's one of the things that we see here. And basically it just says, Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We read God's word so that we know how to think, and then we obey it. And that's just the basics of being a Christian. Like this was one of the verses I thought, this actually was what was wrong with me. I was not willing to change the way I thought growing up. The second thing is that unity flows from specific attitudes and actions. And when we read the passage last week that Paul gave us, oh man, it's traumatizing because of the things that he says we're supposed to do, the things that God tells us we're supposed to do. Uh, Jesus said it this way, love your enemies, do good to those, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. In other words, do good to your enemies that's being a son of God. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God's good to evil people, and God tells us as his children to return good for evil. One of the greatest places we can practice that, of course, is in our family, where that can be very challenging to do. But here's specifically what God said about this issue. 
If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about laboring and working with his own hands. And then he says this, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And those are just really specific questions. You want to have unity? Return good for evil. And that's one of the things that we do in our families. By the way, as a parent, one of the most important things you do in your family is to teach your kids to return good for evil toward each other. Um, and so we're, we're going to dig into more about how some of these things relate to the family. But here's the third thing, and this is where we're going to start today. If you have your Bibles, go to um, verse 14. And let's read this. Let's look at 14 through 17. And we're going to notice a few things. Paul says this. So, so he's writing to them. He's been confronting them. He's, he's just done this, this sarcastic thing when he says, you are kings, but we're lowly, and you know everything, and we don't know everything. And he just reframes their behavior. He puts it in perspective. And then he talks about what drives and motivates what he does. And this is what he says. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in the church. You know, when you look at this passage, um, it just stands out immediately, this family connection between how Paul sees himself and how he sees his ministry. And it's kind of interesting as you read through scripture, that comes out everywhere. Think about our relationship with God. He's our heavenly father. We're his children. And you think about um, just families, how we have fathers and kids. And in the church, it's interesting because the Bible says that elders, one of the qualifications for a spiritual leader in the church is that they manage their household well, that they keep their children submissive. Um, that's like your kids know they must obey. So that's one of the things we know that we do as Christian parents, keeping their children submissive with all dignity. And it goes on and it says, because if a person doesn't know how to manage his own family, how will he manage the church of God? The exact same things that parents are supposed to do in their family is what spiritual leaders do in the church. And you see this language as we look through scripture, right? Paul calls himself a father. He calls Timothy his son. And it's, there's that connection, and we see these two things today, that he loves them and that they must obey. Like, that's what drives and motivates what he does. He says, I don't uh, write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So admonish. Admonish is a stern rebuke. It's a firm confrontation. It's not something that's done in anger. It's not flying off the handle. Like when you read how Paul talks to the Corinthians and when you look at how he does things, and actually either the way, even the way he treated the apostle Peter, one of the reasons people like 
People label Peter as the Pope, but you got Paul going to Peter and saying, you're wrong. You're a hypocrite. And Paul goes into the Galatians, you know, he talks about this in Galatians, how he confronts Peter to his face because he was a hypocrite. And so he addresses his sin. And parents and church leaders have a responsibility to admonish. And that's actually what Paul's doing. He is admonishing them. He's not hating them. He's not insulting them. But he is willing to take a strong stand to admonish them, to correct them. You know, not like Eli. You know, on Father's Day, we looked at Eli. He's got these wicked sons. And first of all, he's totally unaware of what they're doing. Uh, Paul, it's interesting, is not unaware of what is going on in the Corinthian church. In fact, as he writes the New Testament, Paul not only knows what's going on with the people around him, he is aware of what's going on in all these churches all over the place that he has planted. And it's not like today where there's email, where, there's, where somebody could send you a video of something. Like he had to get word of mouth, like, like traveling long distances but he stayed up and he was aware of what was going on in all these churches. And when he heard that there were bad things, he didn't just ignore them. He addressed them. So not like Eli who goes to his kids and says, hey, this is a bad idea, but then lets them do whatever they're doing. Um, but he's going to admonish them. You know, admonishment is actually the word, like, have you, has anybody ever heard of nuthetic counseling? So nuthetic counseling, uh, there's people who label counseling as nuthetic counseling, and that actually comes from this Greek word for admonishment, and it has the idea of correcting people's thinking. And that's often, I think as parents and often in the church, what we care about is behavior. We're just trying to make people do what we want them to do instead of teaching them to think about what they're doing, so that they'll do things because they understand it. Kind of like, uh, you know, there's people who um, unintentionally, they, they train their kids for prison, they train their kids for misery, and they train their kids for divorce. And here's how, you want to know how to do that? Here's how you do that. Give your kids whatever they want. I was sitting around a table one time with this family, man, their kids are out of control. And um, one of the things that they did is the, the kids are all sitting around, we want milkshakes. And so the, the parent brags to the whole table and just says, I give my kids whatever they want because I love my kids. So he buys all the kids milkshakes. And then the kids sat there. They never touched the milkshakes. Our kids are all sitting there. We're like, you can have water. <laughs> That's what you guys get <laughs> spending money on milkshakes. <laughs> it's not wrong to buy your kids milkshakes. <laughs> Uh, often we did not do that with our kids because we didn't have the money. But, um, but you know what? It's like there are people who they think love is to give their kids whatever they want. There are people that instead of teaching their kids to obey out of a right heart, out of honoring authority, out of thinking rightly about what God says about who parents are and what kids should do, people bribe their kids. If you'll do this, I'll give you this. Um, that is training your kids to go to prison. Um, because when you go through life and you're like, I don't, I don't actually care what the right thing is. I don't live my life with an orientation toward honoring God. That's not my goal. My goal is to get what I want. And you want me to stop yelling? Well, you give me this. And then when you give that to them, they learn in life, I should behave 
in order to get what I want most. Well, what happens when what you want most is the money in the bank? What happens when what you want most is what somebody else has? What happens when what you want most is to physically punch somebody who did something that you didn't like? And so often, instead of teaching kids to think, instead of teaching kids to honor God, instead of teaching kids how to think about authority and honoring the Lord by honoring their parents, we bribe people. And by the way, ministry is no different. There, there are whole churches that function on, the, on the, the principle of let's give people what they want. And uh, I'm, I went away to this youth conference. Everybody's doing this stuff. They're trying to get the kids in youth group to invite their friends to church. And they said, hey, we'll give you a free snowboard. If, if you bring a friend, we'll put your, your name in the drawing for a snowboard and tell your friends that if they come, they can get their name in the drawing for a free snowboard. And I'm just thinking, wow, what an amazing thing. Go out and get your friends. Try to fill this room so that you can get something rather than do you want to honor the Lord in your life? Do you care about the eternal destiny of your friends? Do you want to see people come to Christ? Do you want to bring them to church so they can hear the gospel? Like, forget about that, because that doesn't work on teenagers. The only thing that works on teenagers is bribing them. But the problem is it's not just teenagers. There's whole churches built on that model. But the Apostle Paul just says here, he says, I'm going to admonish you as beloved children. He does what he does because he loves them. He wants to see them honor the Lord in, his li in their lives. As beloved children, have you ever thought about uh, what God says about love? The priority of love? How often in churches do we do what we do because we want a certain outcome rather than because we love people? So here's, the, here's what God says, and this is, this is something that we read this in... Uh, Weddings, you've heard this over and over. We're going to get to it, so I won't go too fast on this, or I won't spend too much time. But 1 Corinthians just says this. This is the priority of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. What's interesting about these things that Paul says about speaking with the tongues of men and angels, you know, the Bible's so full of how, how wonderful it is to hear wisdom off a mouth, how important that is. We see spiritual gifts, and we can hear people who sing, and their voices are so incredibly beautiful. They're so inspiring. And that is not unimportant. Uh, when you look at these things, truth, like the church is built on truth. Like these, these things that Paul's talking about, they are priorities in Scripture. Um, sacrificing everything you have and being willing to be burned, man, that is so major. And those are all things that the Bible says you should be willing to do. And Paul says, if you don't do those things in love, it profits nothing. When you think about parenting, one of the most significant things that you're doing is teaching your kids to think about love. 
you're teaching your kids to, to evaluate was what you just did. Is that loving? And you're trying to help your family create habits of love. In marriage, that's one of the things we're doing is we are creating habits of love. How do I love my spouse? How does my spouse love me? That is such a priority. And we're supposed to be aware when what we're doing is not loving. When we are committing sinfulness, when we're doing things that are inappropriate, uh, we're supposed to know this isn't loving. How do you work on being loving if you have not even admitted to yourself when you're doing unloving things? And the Apostle Paul just says, man, love's a priority, and that is what motivates what I do in your life. And then he describes love. I'll never forget the time I'm sitting with this couple, and um, husband was having an affair. And so they're sitting together, and the wife comes, and she just sits down, and she just says, you know, I just um, been talking to my husband about his affair. I'm really committed to our marriage, and I want to see our marriage work out. And he's just, he's telling me that he's unwilling to stop seeing this woman that he's having an affair with. And so they're sitting there together, and she just says, you know, I just, I don't feel like he loves me. Just, I don't feel loved. And he's like, well, no, I do love you. And, and I just said, well, actually, no, you don't love her. And I said, I don't know what your definition of love is or how you think about that, but I just opened up to this passage and I just said, well, you don't feel loved. It's because you're not loved and you don't, you're, you're not loving her. And I just read this and it says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And I just said, does that describe how you are treating your wife? No. That's because that's you don't love her. And what I told this couple is I said, you don't love her, and just so you know, he doesn't love you, and that's obvious by the way that, by what's happening in your relationship, but I just want you to know something. If you go out into the church, like our church is full of couples who don't love each other, like this. They're not living that out. There are plenty of days for me and Michelle where we're not loving each other. We don't always live these things out, and so Yes, this is a crisis and it needs to be fixed, but just so you know, like this whole idea of, well, we're not in love, we should get divorced, no. No, when you're not loving people the way you're supposed to love them, you ask for forgiveness, you ask God for help, and then you start working on practicing loving. And so Paul just goes to the Corinthians, and when he says, I'm addressing you as beloved children, 1 Corinthians 13 is what is in his heart, and it, it is what is expressed toward these folks. You know, um, the Apostle Paul's willing to say hard things. We're going to read about that in a second, and it's because he loves them. This is the other thing, as he just talks about how I love you, you're like my family, and then he talks about his kid Timothy, who's not his natural child, it's his child in the faith. And uh, by the way, like when he was talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, I'm your father. I love you. I'm going to discipline you. He says, we all have tutors. 
That's the body of Christ. Every single one of us is supposed to be a part of this process of encouraging others to honor and obey God. And, okay, that's how the church is supposed to function, right? So the pastors and elders and Bible study leaders are supposed to be going and addressing sin in people's lives and encouraging them and helping them and helping them learn to think. But it is not just the elders, pastors, Bible study leaders that are supposed to be doing that. It is every single person in the church. And what's supposed to happen is when somebody's struggling with sin, they have this internal desire to do the wrong thing. And then somebody goes and addresses their sin. And inside they feel mad, they feel frustrated. How could that person say this to me? Sometimes when they're relaying that conversation to other people, they'll twist it. (laughs) They'll make it sound like it was really harsh and uncaring and mean. Why? They're trying to justify their behavior. And what God intends is for the whole church to come around and to say, no, that person loves you. They are encouraging you. They're helping you, and actually, you should listen to that. You know how destructive it is when somebody really wants to do the wrong thing? They could have 15 people saying, that's wrong, don't do that. It only takes one person to come and say, no, that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that, it's fine. And they're like, okay, yep, see, somebody told me this was okay. And by the way, that's that's what we're supposed to be developing in the church. Do you know how you learn to develop that kind of love and care for each other in the church? You do it in your family, and you teach your family to do it. If you can teach your kids to love and encourage their siblings to honor the Lord, you'll know how to teach other people how to encourage people to love and honor the Lord. Because the church is a family. Um, Paul talks about his son. Look at this in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So Paul's setting an example of who he's supposed to be, of who they're supposed to be. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. I teach them everywhere in every church. You know, the uh, Timothy, Paul took him, traveled with him, ministered to him, with him, trained him, discipled him, and Timothy was like Paul to the point That Paul says, you want to know what I'm like? I'll just send you Timothy. Now think about how that magnifies the power of Paul's ministry. And how did Paul know what was going on in all these churches? How did Paul deal with all these churches? He did not do it all himself. He sent Timothy. He sent Titus. He sent Luke. He sent a bunch of people that he traveled with who were discipled, who were trained, who were like him. And he sent them out to do things. He was in more than one place at once through the people that he sent. And I think this is interesting in how he talks about Timothy. Um, The Philippian church, he sent Timothy there too. He said, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered up by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. Paul just says, Timothy is like me. That is discipleship. When you think about what is the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's salvation. We don't take people and try to clean up their life and and try to fix them apart from a relationship with Christ. So baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. All that I've commanded you. So 
in some ways, a Christian life can be super complicated. There can be so many dynamics that make things hard. But actually, it's very simple. What did Jesus say? Here's how you do that. You know, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, the first thing is husbands need to know that they're supposed to love their wives. So, like, you become a Christian and you're married. One of the first things we do is we say you're a husband. You need to love your wife. But then we need to teach well, what does love look like? What is not loving? Like bossing your wife around, treating her like she's one of your kids, um, being contentious and angry, having a home that revolves around you getting whatever you want. No, that is not loving. That is not what God intends. God intends for you to be a servant leader. And so it's teaching. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean <laughs> I'm going to be a servant leader. <laughs> then you go to your wife and say, what should we do? Okay. And when your wife wants to do something sinful, okay, um, that's not being a servant leader. Being a servant leader is putting their needs first, but it's being an example. It is being a leader. You have tons of, of men that are willing to just sit to the side and let their wives lead the family. The wife brings people to church. The wife is the one who's guiding and directing spiritual growth in the family. No. I mean, yes, a wife should be com completely uh, um, you know, contributing and exercising her influence and using all of her gifts. But the godliness of a family it rests on the shoulder of the dad. And so it's men's responsibility to lead their families. But, but we have a culture that actually that's a bad word. You're not supposed to say that. In fact, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to get to a few verses that they've actually tried to make illegal to say in the United States. And so we'll address that in about... Three or four weeks when we hurt for, hit 1 Corinthians 16. That's not popular, or chapter 6. That's not popular, by the way. It's what God says. And, and many men are not dr the spiritually driving influence in their families. And, and Paul just, he's talking about this influence and he's making disciples. And we're supposed to disciple our kids to the point that they go out and they do what God says to do. Um, often people are, are told that um, no, no kids want to listen to their parents. Um, that's not true. A parent is the most powerful, the most significant influence in their kid's life. There is no one anywhere that has the tools to influence your kids the way you do. And so that's something that we need to look at um, and be diligent in. Paul teaches that Timothy is his true child in the faith and he's discipled. Timothy. Um, so it's love. It's love. That includes discipleship. And here's a, the fourth thing that we're going to see in this passage is that unity flows out of love. The Apostle Paul's been addressing and teaching unity and that they need to love each other. He's modeled that. He even models it in his discipline of them. And here's what we're going to see. Um, unity's worth fighting for. But I'll say something else. There is a power to leadership. Leadership isn't passive. Leadership is not Eli, where he looks at his kids and goes, this is a bad idea. You're going to be in trouble with God if you do that. And then he just stands there while they go off and do the sinfulness. Loving spiritual leadership is powerful and it's decisive. That doesn't mean unloving. That doesn't mean we don't think things through. That doesn't mean we just charge off like a, a bull in a china shop and knock everybody down and yell at everybody and tell everybody all the stuff they're doing wrong. 
Um, that's not godly power. That is fleshly power. But to say, no, um, I will do whatever it takes to deal with what's happening in this situation and to be willing to exercise power. That's what we see. Look at verse 18. <laughs> he then says to these leaders, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. <laughs> Paul's like, I may be gone somewhere else, and you may think you can do whatever you want in God's church. I'm just telling you, you're arrogant, and you think I'm not coming? I'm on my way. In verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So he realizes he's not in control of his life, God is. But he says, I'm coming soon, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? He's just saying, um, I'm coming and I'm going to put things in order. You want me to come with the rod? Because if that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. Or, or if you repent and if you honor and love the Lord, well, then I'll come to you with love and a spirit of gentleness. Um, I want you to think about this. No discipline equals no love. If in your family your kids do whatever they want, if you plead with them, oh, well, please do this. And, well, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want if you'll just do something. And by the way, that creates chaos in a family because um, you, you trade 30 seconds of peace for, for all day long of trauma and difficulty and conflict. But if you don't discipline, if you don't say no, if you don't set boundaries, if you don't train, that is a lack of love. You go to church and you're living in sin, I'll tell you how you know who loves you, because they come talk to you. They talk to you with gentleness, they talk to you with grace, they talk to you with kindness, they talk to you with, with firmness, but you're living in sin and nobody talks to you, it's because nobody loves you. Um, Proverbs 3.12 says, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in whom he delights. God says, I'm like a dad, and every dad who loves their kids disciplines them, and I'm like that, I will discipline you. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You know, people don't understand what it means to love someone. You willing to talk to somebody and have them mad at you, have them hate you, when your kids are struggling, are you willing to step into their life, not carelessly, not just go, go off on them, not damage your relationship with them, but do you love your kids enough to look at them and say, this is wrong, you need to stop doing this, I won't support this, I'm not going to help you. Like, will you address that in, in your kids' lives? That is an easy question to answer. Do you love them? The answer is yes. Do you not love them? The answer is no. And we have this idea that life is just random. And we don't look around and say, no, God has told us how to disciple. He's told us how to train. He's told us how to love people. And if we obey, there are beneficial results. And that doesn't mean everything, any, any, everything's perfect. Like I, I think about these are things that I knew. All the stuff I'm telling you, I knew this all before I had kids. Not everybody knows all this stuff before they have kids. And this, I would say, in my life 
has always been my greatest passion. I cared more about the salvation of my kids than anybody at church. Um, I, I thought to myself in my early years of ministry, there is no way that I'm going to go to church every week and share the gospel with other people's kids and go to discipleship group meetings and do discipleship while my own kids walk off the cliff. I mean, how many times do we see that? That spiritual leaders spend more time on the church than they do their own family. And one of the things I thought about was I actually love my kids more than I love the people at church. I have more influence in my kids' lives than the people at church. And so I knew all these things. And Michelle and I, we worked so hard to put them all into practice. And if I get, sometimes I see people in this church and their kids are running around. And they're so cute. They're like five, seven, eight, ten years old. And one of the things that crosses my mind is I wish I could go back and reparent from seven to like twelve. Like there are, hey, we, we worked really hard. We did the best that we could often, but also we were tired and lazy and there was things we didn't do right. And there were some things that, that out of good motives we do that we wish we could go back and do differently. Um, so knowing all that, we, you know, if my kids like went off the deep end, can I just tell you what I would not say? I would never say, <laughs> not my fault, had nothing to do with me, it's just them. Like, I could make you a list for every single one of my kids that is long enough that if we're trying to establish blame, I get plenty of blame for anything wrong in my kids' lives. And that's why as we parent, like, we do the best we can, and we don't always do what we should do, and sometimes we didn't know any better, and so we don't ever beat ourselves up over that. That just makes me say, okay, God's gracious, and he's loving and merciful, and yeah, I messed it up. But guess what? If I pray, um, God will work in my kid's life because ultimately God's the one who works. It's not us that are in control of life. But also, I would never rationalize ways that I disregarded God, ways that I didn't obey God and just go, oh, it doesn't really matter. It was insignificant. That was unimportant. No. Because part of it is whatever I didn't do when my kids were younger, whatever I did wrong... Those, that's not the same thing. My kids are all adults now. But those same principles still apply in my relationship with my kids. And there's a lot of things that I did when they were younger that I wish they didn't do. But guess what? I'm not still doing those things. And if there were things I should have been addressing when they were younger, I'm starting to address those now. And I do it in a different context, in a different relationship. But I'm still doing those same things. And, and that's how the body of Christ is supposed to be. And this is something else. If I don't think rightly about my parenting, I will make those same mistakes in my leadership as a pastor, in my ministry to other people. And so partly I need to be able to look back at what I did wrong and ways I needed to grow, having the benefit of being able to look back. Because if I don't, my, my current ministry will not be as effective as it should be. And obviously none of this is related to that any of us are perfect enough to do anything. But you see that Paul doesn't leave sin unaddressed. He addresses it. And he's firm. He's willing to take a hard stand. And he tells them, I'm coming with a rod of discipline or in love, the choice is yours. And um, here's one of the things that the 
Corinthian church, they heard that, they knew that Paul loved them, and they responded to what he said. And one of the things in this whole passage that we've been addressing is a lack of unity. Big emphasis last week was that when we're fighting with each other, we are not caring for the people in our life the way God intends us to. Mom and dad are fighting, they're not helping their kids grow. In a church, leaders are fighting with each other, they are not caring for the people in the church. And so you have to have unity, like that's a necessity. It flows out of who we are in Christ, but it's very practical. And one of the things that's crazy is you have these, this Corinthian church, they're spending all this time fighting about, oh, I'm following this person, and I'm following this person, and I'm following this person. Who are we supposed to be following? Christ, right? <laughs> so we all follow Christ, not people. And, and, and as they fight, there's this guy in their church who's living in sin. So Paul spends four chapters talking about unity. You want to know what happens? We'll find out about this in the next two weeks on Sunday morning. But he says, there's a guy in your church, you need to throw him out. Tell him he can't come back. Like that is part of Paul's teaching in unity. And he's like, the bottom line is you should have been helping that person. And part of helping that person is telling them not to come back. But you're so busy fighting with each other that you're not doing what God told you to do. You are not seeing the sin in your midst and you're not addressing it. And so he says, do it. And guess what this church does? Uh, by the way, you know why they weren't doing it? I'll give you a little hint. They were priding themselves on how loving they were. And it's like, <laughs> they're unloving because they're fleshly. They're not addressing sin because they're fleshly. And if they were spirit-filled, they would have been unified. And if they were spirit-filled, they would have been addressing sin. And so he tells them to do it. But this, you want to know what the crazy thing is about this church? As messed up as they were, they do exactly what God tells them to do. And the punchline of this, we'll get to it next week, that guy actually ends up repenting and coming back to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul has to say, let him back into the church because they threw him out and now they won't let him back in. So um, we'll come back to that. But the Apostle Paul, I want to just say something about, um, and we're going to end with this, the authority. I want you to know something that Paul's authority in the, to tell the Corinthian church what to do, the power that Paul is coming with, has nothing to do with him. It's not ultimately any human being's authority we're concerned with. It's God's. Paul is a faithful spokesperson of God. And when you disregard the Apostle Paul, when you disregard Scripture, when you disregard a spiritual leader in your life, I just got to tell you, I mean, in one sense, who cares? Um, I'll tell you why you should care. Because when you disregard those things, you're disregarding God himself. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, talking about sexual purity. Whoever disregards this is not disregarding man, but God um, we need to take these things seriously, and when people are addressing you, when God sends people to talk to you, when you are in a position to exercise authority and to, um, to, to use your spiritual leadership, man, you better think about the fact that when a leader addresses you, if they're saying what God says, that is God speaking to you, and he sends people to you, do not disregard what God tells you through people. And for leaders often that can be abusive, you're going to people and you're addressing people, you better think about the fact that these are God's children. And as you parent in your home, 
Uh, you're not just there to rule with an iron fist. These kids you have, these are God's kids. And if you fail to discipline, you hate them. You are hating God's kids. Man, that, that should scare you. If you are heavy-handed and abusive toward your kids, th those are God's children. You should be terrified. You know, think about how you would feel if somebody walked up to one of your kids and slapped them. You don't do that to God's children. And so the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm coming with a rod, but he's not abusive. And, and the, the thing in all of this that we need to think about that needs to be foremost in our mind, it is not a hum the human level of things. It is the vertical level of things. And so there's lots here for us to work on. We'll jump into 1 Corinthians 5 next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for what you teach about love. Lord, it is so important. And God, it is something that we all struggle with on a regular basis. But I pray that we would read your word, that we would be committed to obeying it. And Lord, that we would just grow in love. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts through the Holy Spirit with love for others, that same love that you have, and that, Lord, we would love other people with your love. And, God, I think about unity, how important it is for us to be working as a team, for us to be supporting one another, and, Lord, for us to obey you. Lord, when we, when we feel disunity, when we, when we feel things that cause disunity, God, I pray that we would seek unity in the way that you say we should that we would obey, obey you in how we manage relationships. God, I pray that this would be a unified church that is focused and committed to doing exactly what you say we should do in your name. Amen.